<clears throat> this is day one of this July 2021 seven-day session. First session at Chapin Mill in a year and a half. First session since uh, the pandemic drove us out of here uh, in March of 2020. I'm go back to one of my favorite texts and I hope it is of others as well, uh, from the Korean Zen tradition. Uh, the book is called The Way of Korean Zen, and it's by a 20th century uh, Korean master, Kusan Sunim. Sunim is sort of the, the um, Korean equivalent of Roshi, <clears throat> or maybe Sensei, I'm not sure. I'm going to start off with the, uh, the biographical sketch of this master, Kusan. Yeah, that's what it, yeah, Sunim, probably yeah, the translator is translating as master. <clears throat> His dates are uh, 1909 to 1983, so some 38 years ago he died. And, and, the, and the book is... Uh, It's, uh, the book was translated by Martine uh, Batchelor. That's she's the former wife, ex-wife of Stephen Batchelor. <clears throat> I've met both of them at uh, some conferences. Um, both very, very sincere practitioners. <clears throat> Kusan Sunim was born near a town in the southwest of Korea in 1909. That just puts him just born three years before Roshi Kaplow. His parents owned a farm and family life was centered around work in the fields. His parents were Buddhist. He attended classes at the local Confucian school where he studied the Chinese classics until he was about 15. And then when he left school, he continued to help on the family farm and worked as a barber until the age of 29. He also was married during this time, <clears throat> before the age of 29. Interesting, the, he studied the Chinese classics which you wouldn't expect of a farmer or a barber. <clears throat> From an early age, he had been drawn to monasticism. She quotes him here, When I was nine years old, I remember thinking, could it be possible for someone to be without birth and death? Was it possible to have unlimited powers to move freely through the sky and on the earth? 
Such thoughts made me want to go and live with the monks in the mountains. But the fear of missing my parents prevented me from leaving home then. When I was 20, I also considered such a life, but I was not sufficiently determined. Fear of missing my parents. I can relate. When I first came to the center, I asked Roshi Kaplow to ordain me as a celibate monk, well, after a couple of, couple, three years, and uh, he agreed to do so. In those days, uh, he wanted to stick to the Chinese system of real celibacy, but, but that system also meant cutting off ties from your family. Well, when I, uh, he, he agreed to ordain me uh, right before uh, we went into a seven-day session, and I, I was just all in turmoil during that session, thinking not about celibacy. I was already celibate, but um, thinking of how I could, how I would have to say goodbye to my, to my parents and my five sisters. Um, this is what really weighed on me. And I came out of Sashin and I said, I just can't do that. And then it was a year or two after that that he realized that for us in the United States, uh, that system of celibacy and renouncing one's family just uh, wasn't working. And uh, that's when he agreed to follow the Japanese system of uh, allowing um, the ordained priest uh, to either marry or not. At the age of 26, he was stricken by a severe illness that caused him a great deal of pain. Uh, when a friend saw him in this condition, this friend was also a devout Buddhist lay- layman, he asked him, since the abode of the self-nature is originally pure, where does your illness lie? These words had a deep effect on Kusan. You know, so much of this, this so much of what we hear a teacher say or a friend or anyone it doesn't matter who uh, whether how it affects us depends very much on timing on one's readiness for it most for most people they're in serious illness, they hear a question like this, since the abode of the self-nature is originally pure, where does your, where does your illness lie? Uh, I, I, probably most people would just wash over them. They would be so miserable. But not with Kusan at this time. They must have bit into him. And... Uh, and engendered a questioning 
or at least uh, further stimulated a a questioning, or what we call doubt in Zen, a questioning that had already uh, gotten, already been going. So he decided, even while he was still sick, to go to a certain monastery uh, to recite the Kanongyo. No, not the Kiongo. The mantra of Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara is the Indian, original Indian name for Kanon or Guanyin. But this is, uh, this is more the, the Tibetan uh, mantra. Om Mani Padme Hum. In my pilgrimage to uh, Tibet, uh, this is everywhere. Everywhere you'd see uh, Tibetan Buddhists uh, fingering their rosaries and chanting, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum. Interesting that uh, this he made this Tibetan practice. I've never heard of it in Chinese or Japanese Zen. That he made this part of his practice. He, he was probably convinced that uh, this was a special mantra, a special chant that would cure him from from, from his illness. And he did this for one hundred days. And then it, it says, after completing this. Hundred days of this mantra, he found himself cured of his illness. A skeptical person hearing this uh, might think, well, might have been cured anyway, even without reciting all that. We will never know, will we? But this experience really strengthened, greatly strengthened his faith in the Dharma. Then it was three years later that he became convinced that he should dedicate his life to the full-time practice of the teaching of the Buddha. So he left home and family and started traveling to various monasteries in order to find a teacher. He went to 11 different temples and he finally came to Songguangsa. Where he met, well, I'll just stop there. He finally came to Songguangsa and there's a description here. I thought just to sort of give you some context Songguangsa, this is, this is the uh, editor, Stephen Batchelor, who provided this. Songguangsa is reached by a narrow, unpaved road that winds gently up from the valley below. The monastery itself is nestled in a circle of steep, forested hills, insulated by nature from the disturbances of the outside world. The monastery complex complex itself is formed around a spacious square courtyard. 
Does that sound familiar? Um, though I bet it is more spacious than ours here. This uh, open space was dominated by the Buddha Hall. Um, it's an impressive wooden structure mounted with an imposing yet delicate Chinese-style slate roof. As with most of the temple buildings in the monastery, its walls are colorfully decorated with figures from the Buddhist pantheon, scenes from the lives of famous monks, as well as landscapes. The ceiling is adorned with a profusion of multicolored interweaving patterns and motifs. There we see one of the the differences between uh, Korean Zen style and uh, Chinese and Japanese. Although uh, Chinese, from my pilgrimage to China, there was more color and more more elaborate uh, decorations than in Japan. In uh, Japan, it's more the emphasis on uh, this, the, the natural, the wood. Around the central courtyard are smaller temples of similar design, dedicated to different bodhisattvas. There are also a dining and a kitchen area, living quarters for the monks, and rooms for guests. So no mention there of the meditation hall, the zendo. But until now, immediately behind the main Buddha hall and elevated some 50 feet up on the hillside lies another group of buildings. This is where the meditation hall, a a large lecture room, a couple of small temples, and the quarters of the Zen master are located. The area is sealed off from the rest of the monastery and is only accessible to those monks undergoing training in Zen meditation. It overlooks the entire monastery and offers a panoramic view of the surrounding hills and mountains. I'll just continue reading here where he... uh, Bachelor sets the the whole scene. Once a monk has been formally accepted into the community, he then moves into the meditation hall and installs what few possessions he has in a locker. According to the length of time, that is, according to his seniority, he is assigned a place in one of the two rows of meditation cushions that run down the length of the hall. This is where he will sit facing the wall in meditation during the day and lie down to sleep at night. This was also uh, true at one of the two temples I trained at in Japan, a Rinzai temple, where we we would sleep in the Zendo. We would sleep in the Zendo during Sashin. And uh, outside Sashin, people had their own rooms or sharing rooms. Uh, still now in the zendo the, the hall is un, the meditation hall is uncluttered and spacious 
The walls and ceiling are white. Okay, so now we've moved off all of the extravagant colors and forms because we're in the meditation hall. And this is most interesting to me. In the middle of the long back wall is a small altar, a small altar, above which hangs a mirror symbolizing true mind. It's always intrigued me. I never heard about that in, uh, in, or saw it in China or in Japan. Maybe someday we should, we should try it. The, of course, the, the mirror would be high enough that you're not grooming yourself in the mirror. <clears throat> the floor is covered with varnished yellow ochre paper and is heated from below by a wood fire. That's uh, that's what they're famous for in Korea. The fires under the floor, the stone floor, keep it warm. The doors are just sliding paper screens, same as Japan. After dusk, a dull electric lamp is used. There are a minimum of external objects to distract the monk from his meditation. All right, let's get back to this journey of uh, Kusan, who lands here at this Songguangsa, and uh, that's where he met uh, the man who would become his own master, uh, Huobong Sunim. Now, we're going to shift over to a little bit about Hobong, Kusan's teacher. Says he was one of the most remarkable Buddhist teachers of this century in Korea, that is the 20th century. He was born in 1888. He had studied law. And during the Japanese occupation, he was the first Korean who was permitted to become a judge. That means he must have been very compliant and obedient if the if the Japanese occupation would let him be a judge. Since many Koreans strongly resisted the Japanese rule, he was often forced to pass judgment on fellow Koreans accused of anti Japanese activities. And this you can as you can imagine became a growing source of conflict for him. Well, he managed to soldier on with this as a, this job as a judge for 10 years, and then a case came up in which he was forced to sentence the prisoner to death. This uh, really shook him and caused him to question deeply what rights he had to impose corporal punishment on others. He began to doubt the validity of the entire legal system and the society that supported it. So one day he decided he couldn't, couldn't take it any longer, and without telling anyone, without telling anyone, 
he suddenly left his work and home and became a wandering toffee seller. Toffee uh, is a type of taffy candy. Continuing on here about Hobong, not Kusan, Hobong. For the next three years, he drifted through the country, barely supporting himself by selling toffee. All this time, he reflected upon how he could lead a true and honest human life. Let's see, how old would he have been? He's born in 1888. This was during the occupation. Oh, I don't know. He was not awfully young. Oh, here. Um, He was 39. He finally decided to enter a monastery and start practicing Zen. He was ordained at 39. And this late start, late that is compared to the norm, um, impelled him to practice with great fervor. For many years, he stayed in retreat, concentrating solely on resolving the koan mu. When he was 43, so that's five years of that, he built himself a tiny hermitage and sealed himself inside. He left just one small hole in the wall through which food could be passed in and out. This is something uh, you also... Uh, read about in Tibetan Buddhism, these hermits living in a little cell like that. And he he for, he kept this up for a, a year and a half in complete solitude. I hope there was a pandemic during that year and a half, so he didn't miss anything. For uh, finally, his mind's eye opened, and he realized that at last all of his doubts had been resolved. And then during the next 30 years, this master Huobong became a widely known and respected teacher and is eventually appointed the spiritual head of the Chogye order. I think it's, from what I've read, it's the most prominent of the Korean Zen orders, the Chogye order. And now back to Kusan meeting Huobong. Kusan told him he wished to become a monk and asked him to take him as a disciple. Master Hyobong agreed and instructed him in the koan mu. Now, let me just hear a sidebar. Um, The translator renders mu as no. And that's, that's... widely, generally, that's how Mu and Wu, Wu is the original Chinese. This is a, is a Chinese, Joshu is a Chinese master, Zhao Zhou. And that little exchange where the monk asked, does even a dog uh, have Buddha nature? And uh, the, the real Chinese, Zhao Zhou, said Wu. Uh, the Japanese made it mu. I don't know what the Koreans made it, but uh, it's translated here as no. But uh, I've heard from a couple of sources that that's 
possibly not a great translation, no or not. Um, the better one I heard, I read about in a, in a book of foreign uh, tra- translations of foreign words and phrases, was that mu and wu mean it's not what you think. It's not what you think. Whatever you think it is, it's not. Because that's thinking. I'm going to make it mu instead of no if, if, it's, if it's repeated here. Uh, eight months later, after um, being assigned the koan mu, uh, he became um, hmm. now it says he received uh, ordination and entered the meditation hall. Okay. A little confusion there. And then at the age of 31, uh oh, he became, was fully ordained as a celibate monk, bhikshu. From the beginning, this master Kusan was only interested in the practice of Zen and never attended a sutra school to study the Buddhist sutras. And these are his words. I chose to enter the Zen school because I thought that through meditation I would be able to free myself from birth and death and gain the power to transform this world into a Buddha realm. It is a Buddha, transform it into a Buddha realm. What he, what we, the way we can understand this is to, is to see with new eyes, to see this world for all of its terrible suffering as ultimately something pure and luminous and wondrous and unfathomable and glorious, even while not denying the terrible suffering. To continue with his words, in the sutra schools, one is only told about cultivating the mind and awakening. I felt it would be better to actually realize these things instead. Okay, that's that's what we all have in common with Kusan, all of us here. We wouldn't be here otherwise, would we? We'd be reading somewhere. And here, in Sashim, we read ourselves. As soon as he took up the practice of Zen meditation, he did so, she writes, with a tremendous resolve and determination. And again, here are Kusan's words. When I started meditating, I was firmly convinced that I would be able to complete the practice within the three months of the first retreat period. Their retreats uh, are 90 days, uh, they're not as intense. They're not as 
strict as our seven-day sashins, but still, 90 days of extra sitting, he writes, he says, I exerted myself to the point where I no longer cared whether I lived or died. This, uh, I remember my early years of practice hearing this, I no longer cared whether I lived or died. I assumed it was hyperbole. How could you reach a point where you, you no longer cared whether you lived or died? But then later, as my practice on Mu ripened, I understood and felt the same way. But then the three months were drawing to an end, and he says, I had still not realized my goal. Of course, that means enlightenment. I wanted to die since I felt it was, it was no longer worth living. My life was no longer worth living. Once while doing standing meditation in order to prevent drowsiness, that's another thing that they do in Korean Zen when you become terribly drowsy in the, in the Zendo, you have the option of standing um, where you're less likely to be succumb to drowsiness. Uh, once when he was doing the standing, he said, I thought of drowning myself or throwing myself off a high cliff. But at that very moment, a huge snow-capped mountain appeared before me. And this somehow shook him out of his misery or self-pity and he it made him remember that the Buddha himself, Shakyamuni, had practiced for six full years at the feet of just such mountains. I then realized that it was somewhat presumptuous for me to want to complete my training in three months. So then he, he renounced his intention to die and redoubled his efforts. And then the account here says that during the following years, Kusan continued to pursue his practice fiercely. After spending a number of seasons in various meditation halls, he decided he needed the solitude of a hermitage in order to be able to concentrate himself fully on his practice. And so he would spend his time in small, remote hermitages often completely by himself, so taking a page from his teacher's efforts. Again, these are Kusan's words. At these times when I was hungry, I would find something to eat. When thirsty, I would drink. When the room was cold, I would light a fire under the floor. I tried to practice as hard as I could and would sleep very little. His disciples recalled that in those days, Kusan was a very stern and even frightening figure. He would demand exemplary conduct from all the younger students of his teacher and urge them to work hard all day and meditate through the night. He would constantly remind them that they never knew when they might die, that they would be finished should the mere breath in their nostrils come to a stop. 
Yeah, so what he was doing was trying to foster a, a more acute awareness in the monks of the fragility of life, the, pre- the precariousness of this life. Just the breath in our nostrils stopping there it's it at all times since since birth itself is just hanging on by that thread the breath this delicate mysterious process inhaling and exhaling and inhaling and exhaling this breath that that has its own remarkable intelligence where even through the night when we're sound asleep the breath enters the lungs and it's expelled it enters the lungs and it is expelled without us doing it no control no intention It's beyond us. It's beyond the self. Bigger than the self. Having its own mandate. What is that? Really, what is this breath that keeps us going moment after moment? month after month, year after year. It goes on to say if he if a young monk were to waste even a few grains of rice or a single cabbage leaf, you know cabbage is very big in Korea, kimchi uh, Kusan would punish him, would make him go without food for the rest of the day. Um, without being that punitive, we also, is something we want to maintain is this strong emphasis in, in Zen and not wasting. Not wasting electricity, gas, without wasting food especially, without wasting water, but especially food. Can't be perfect with this, as any any head cook at a sashin or outside sashin, as any head cook knows, 
you can't be perfect about this and you can you can go too far and too extreme but uh we make our best effort to not be careless and honor honor this food which like breath keeps us alive so that we can practice so we can realize the self nature It says his first important experience in meditation occurred after he had been sitting continuously for seven days with the intense resolve to awaken before the memorial ceremony that came at the end of those seven days. So it was something, uh, but it says here, however, he did not consider this a true awakening. These are his words. While meditating... Such experiences sometimes happen. You could say it was a certain opening of the mind's eye. It was the transition over a difficult step that enabled me to first gain admittance to the door. Perhaps you could call it an initial breakthrough. It showed that my practice was progressing well. So he had the maturity, or at least in retrospect, uh, he had the maturity to recognize that this is not any great crowning experience uh, that means your work is done. And that's, that's what I try to remind people of when they have passed their first koan, mu, or who, or what is this, uh, that uh yeah it's it's an initial breakthrough initial with years lifetimes of work yet to do he then went to a small hermitage he stayed there for 3 years and in 1946, he experienced a major breakthrough. This occurred after he had entered a state in which, for 15 days, he lost any sense of the outside world. He was no longer concerned whether he lived or died. He was so absorbed in his meditation that birds would come and sit on his head and shoulders and take pieces of stuffing that protruded from his padded coat for their nests. After this, he came down to the main temple and delivered a formal Dharma discourse to the monks. And he described, he recorded his experience, this major awakening, in the following verse. Look at the front of the mirror. It is completely dark. Look at the back, and it is brilliantly clear. Looking at the front, it is not the front. Looking at the back, it is also not the back. When both front and back are shattered, then truly one has a great, complete mirror.
front, back, forum, emptiness. And we chanted this morning in affirming faith in mind, what is is not, what is not is. We'll have to leave it there for today, and we'll stop now and recite the four vows.